National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. For much of the 20th century, there were efforts to drain the Everglades, that world-famous river of grass in Florida, to make way for agriculture, industry, and communities. More recently, more effort has been focused on restoring the Everglades to let the sheet of water that heads south from Lake Okeechobee down to Florida Bay flow more naturally, as naturally as possible. It's not a small effort either. Indeed, it's considered to be the largest ecosystem restoration project in the world, with billions of dollars being spent to make it succeed. Part of that work entails removing old canals that contributed to the problem by enabling saltwater intrusion and crippling marshlands. The goal is to restore the natural ecosystem so it can enhance critical habitat for myriad species, such as wading birds, shorebirds, game fish, American crocodiles. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Near the very tip of Everglades National Park, the interior wetlands of Cape Sable have long been viewed as one of the most ecologically productive environments left in Florida. It could become even more so thanks to an upcoming restoration project. To explain the project and its benefits, I'm joined today by Dr. Jerry Lorenz, head of Audubon's Everglades Science Center. We'll be back in a minute with Dr. Lorenz. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O, group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Welcome to The Traveler, Dr. Lorenz. Thanks for making time for us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, before we get into the specifics of the restoration work, could you describe the Cape Sable area for us, its value and its role in a healthy Everglades? That's a big question. It, it's a very large area, and the Cape Sable itself is a peninsula on a peninsula. So it's, it's surrounded by basically the Gulf of Mexico to the uh, west and to the north is Whitewater Bay, part of Everglades National Park. And to the south is Florida Bay, also part of Everglades National Park. In this habitat, it, historically, it was a freshwater wetland. It was heavily damaged in both the, uh, the Labor Day storm in 1935 and by Hurricane Donna, both of which hit it directly. And that started the process of changing it more into a, a saltier habitat, more of a marine environment. 
but it has it, it, its productivity has stayed consistent. This has always been one of the great areas for wading bird foraging and nesting. So there were always millions of, of the birds that we see, that we associate with the Everglades that used this habitat uh, while they were nesting in Everglades National Park. Now the habitat itself is a wetland. It's very shallow. Um, you know, there are some deeper water lakes that are a whopping five or six feet deep. But for the most part, it is, you know, a, a shallow wetland. And this wetland, it, it's expansive. And so during the wet season, you have these prey-based fishes, the things that everything else eats, including the crocodiles that live out there, that expand over this huge area and then reproduce. So they make more of themselves and they got really short generation times and real high fecundity. So the population explodes during the wet season. And then during the dry season, all that water contracts into these deeper water pools, concentrating that prey. And that's when the wading birds and the game fish and even the crocodilians, birds of prey, will come in and feed on these fish that are highly concentrated. So it's not only productive in the sense that, you know, it produces a lot of life that is then, you know, basically consumed by the larger animals that people so much care about, care about and want, want to see. But it is also producing, um, you know, it, it, it is definitely a, it's become a mangrove habitat at this point. Um, so it sequesters carbon. And honestly, one of the most amazing things about it is the things that, that I see when you go out there. It's very, very remote. It's very hard to get to. And it's quite frankly, very inhospitable. The mosquitoes can get to the point of of driving you insane. Um, the only time I've been working in the Everglades for 30 years, and the only time I truly feared for my life while working in the 30 years outside of lightning, you know, light, you, those storms can come up pretty quick and you get pretty terrified when lightning strikes start happening. Mm -hmm. But from wildlife was, I was swarmed by mosquitoes on Cape Sable. I can even tell you it was the first week of September, 1996. And the mosquitoes were so thick. I was wearing a long sleeve white shirt. I could not see white. I was wearing a head net. I could not see out of the head net. And I really, I was, I had to walk a half mile to get back to my boat. And I was afraid I was going to suffocate. So it, it's, it can be one of the most inhospitable places on the planet. But at the same time, after working in the Everglades for 30 years, the most remarkable things I've ever seen, I've seen on Cape Sable. The, the, the amount of wildlife and it's not used to people. And so it's rather fearless. I used to be able to approach in my kayak or my canoe within a couple of feet of woods, foraging wood storks and spoonbills. And they just st stare at me. So it is quite a remarkable place. And, and um, uh, there's, there's a lot of reasons to preserve this habitat. And that's what we're all about. What's the story with the canals? Were they um, done to try and drain that habitat or to, to funnel water down from above? Or? No, the, there, there are five canals that were built in the 30s on Cape Sable. And they all go to open water. So they go from the wetland to open water. And they were built for agriculture, basically. They, they you know, they, 
there was a plan to develop the beaches of Cape Sable. Um, and so it's partly that, but mostly the, the people that put these in place owned the land. This is before the national park and they wanted to raise cattle on this wetland. And uh, that didn't work out so well. You know, as I described to mosquitoes, uh, they found that, that uh, yeah, the cattle would not survive, but the damage was done. And two of the canals were made for kind of development of Cape Sable. The other three were done for agri purely for agriculture. And uh, there they sat. They were never part of the water management system. They were never meant to be part of the water management system and they never had been. But they just basically were left derelict. Um, the National Park put in earthen plugs, I believe in the, I might've been the seventies or eighties. I'm not sure about that timeline. But when I started working on Cape Sable in the late 80s and early 90s, those canals were little more than these shallow ditches. They, the, one of them is called Slagle's Ditch, and I worked there very quite frequently when I was in my younger days. And that was just so silted in. It was only about, about six or seven inches deep during the dry season, at, if that. And, you know, they were only about eight, nine feet wide. But as the sea level has risen, it started to scour those canals. And the out of the five, all of them had earthen plugs. Well, in the mid eighties, uh, some unscrupulous fishermen decided they wanted to take their motors, motor boats into the wilderness area to go fishing. And that's prohibited. By, by law, um, but so they dug out those earthen plugs on two of these canals. Um, and the result was the flow increased. And with the flow increase, it started to scour those two canals. And by 1990, the park had decided that they needed real dams. So they put in sheet pile dams to block the flow. Well, the fishermen just dug around those two. And by the, by the year 2000, those canals were uh, probably 50 feet wide and down to bedrock, so 11 feet deep. And on each tide, they would move that sediment out into the open water. Um, and it, was, it just kept getting worse and worse over time. It was rather a disaster, and I watched it happen. The, one of the bodies of water that three of these canals goes into is called Lake Ingram. And historically it was a freshwater lake. And it's about, oh, I don't know, 15 miles long and maybe one or two miles wide, it's oddly shaped. It is now half full of the sediment. So what was, was a deep water lake is now half of it is exposed at low tide and is, has become a mud flat. And that's just the sediment going out these canals from Cape Sable and being deposited in the lake. Now, is plugging the canals the, the best solution um, as opposed to somehow going in and, and reclaiming them and, and restoring the, the natural elevations? Well, that, that is the point of these, these concrete structures, the, the plugs or the dams, however you want to say it, um, is that these canals, there's a ridge that ran along the, between the, the marine environment and what was a freshwater environment. And that ridge is known as the coastal prairie trail or the coastal ridge. Um, more specific, it's been called the Flamingo Ridge. 
And so this is kind of an upland that separated the inland wetlands from the marine environment. That was kind of the tidal block. And all the canals punctured that coastal ridge. Okay. And so what we're doing with these dams is building them to the surface to match the surface of that coastal berm. And so we're actually putting back what was the natural barrier. And the concept here is that we know it's going to get overtopped with sea level rise. But if you have holes in that, that ridge, then it's going to, all the water is going to go in and then come back out and it's going to take things with it. If we have these in place, the vision is, is that when the sea does crest, it'll go as sheet, basically a sheet tide across that ridge and the erosion will be spread over miles and miles of this ridge instead of point source. And so the engineering is pretty solid. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into the sea level rise in a minute. Now, I understand that, you know, this this restoration work has, has um, been going along in phases, I guess, is a, one way to put it. And just uh, recently, the, the park and its partners received a, a large grant to finish finish the work, so to speak, plug the final canal. Indeed. Um, so the, the, the history of it is that the two earthen plugs are that go from the Cape Sable region into Florida Bay. Those help. It's the other three that go into Lake Ingram that were breached. And they were breached at different times. And so even while I was watching them build the, the two dams at the southern and middle of these canals, the northern canal was hit by Hurricane Wilma in 2006, and it ripped out a mangrove that was, was, was growing on the earthen plug literally ripping out that plug. And within a month or two, the water started flowing through the plug and then started eroding away at the plug. In the meantime, in 2008, as I'm watching this go from a, the northern one go, it's called Rollerson Brothers Canal. I'm watching this canal grow from something that was only about five feet wide and inches deep to you know 10 feet, 12 feet across and getting deeper by the day. While that's happening, the other two canals that empty into Lake Ingram are having these giant concrete structures put in to block the flow that was really damaging things. And simultaneously, as I'm celebrating this victory of finally getting those two open canals finally plugged, I'm watching a third one open up. And you just can't, it's a national park, you just can't switch and take your equipment from one place to another and just start constructing because you want to. Yeah. Even though the um, the common sense says just go fill it in now before it gets too big, and uh, of course there are all kinds of environmental impact studies, and, and rightfully so. But by the time they finished those plugs in 2010 and 11, um, that northern canal was about 25 to 30 feet wide, and again down to bedrock at 11 feet deep. And that's when we started really paying attention to that canal. And we photo documented, documented it through time from a little bitty stream to, you know, now it is 77 feet across. Wow. 11 feet deep. And it, it is a major flow away. Now, in the meantime, working with the partners that are really going to start fixing this problem by building another structure, 
we reinforced the other two plugs that empty into Florida Bay. Our colleagues at the National Park Service and the Everglades Foundation uh, received a grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And I forget the exact amount, that was either one or $2 million, I think it was two. The first pot of that money was used to reinforce those two earthen dams. So they should not be a problem going in the future. They have been, basically the canals have been filled in. But $2 million was not enough to fix Rollerson Brothers. And that's where the coalition started to grow. And we at Audubon, National Audubon Society, paid for a engineering study to have a, the design made. The National Park itself was getting the permits and you know the environmental impact statements and all that stuff done. Um, and we were joined by the State Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission got involved. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service got involved. And then ultimately, our partners at Ducks Unlimited got involved because this is really excellent wetland duck habitat. And, you know, they, they're in the business of restoring wetlands for duck habitat. And they have all these methods that they've tested, tried and true. And they were able to raise the rest of the money, the funds needed to build this plug. And they are now going to manage the project and it will get started, we hope, um, in late 2022. I, probably in November, at least that's, that's, what, that's what we're hearing. Mm -hmm. um, and it should be done by the following April. So it is, it is a really, it's a wonderful victory for the Everglades and South Florida. Now, you mentioned it, this one area covers roughly um, 5 million acres or so, maybe. What about miles? I mean, how, how long is the area involved, um, oh, if you can do uh, it that way? How many football fields, as journalists would say? <laughs> oh, a lot of baseball fields. It's probably, the peninsula is probably, um, I'm looking at a map, and I'm just guessing here, but I would say 25 miles, 30 miles long, maybe even 40, and is no, probably 25, and um, probably about five miles between Whitewater Bay and either Florida Bay or the Gulf, and it's kind of a um, crescent shape. The canals are all along that stretch? They're all along, they're, they're mostly along the southern coast, right? The, the, the way that the, the coast turns to go from going east to west to go north, we are talking about extreme southern Florida. We are talking about the end of the peninsula. Um, and so there is a curvature as it turns from east west to going north. And they're all on that, that kind of southwestern point of the peninsula. And, and how long might some of these canals have been when they first were built? Well, the, 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 the two that were opened up were the Homestead and the East Cape Canal. And they actually connected each other about uh, five miles inland. But that canal was built as a road. That canal was not built as a canal. It was built as a road to get from the Miami area to get to Cape Sable. And that was the, what we know in South Florida as the old Ingram Highway. And there are parts of the Ingram Highway that are still, um, well, now, now they're urban areas and suburban areas. They run through Coconut Grove and uh, Cutler Bay and several major municipalities. So the Ingram Highway stretched, people think it, 
it's kind of a coastal thing that is part of the Miami Metroplex, but it did not end until it reached Cape Sable. And so that is, that, that's straight across the peninsula. That must have been hellish work building those canals and that road. I mean, I've, I've read about the, the Tamiami Trail and, and the, the work that went into building that. And, and to listen to you talk about the mosquitoes today, back in the 30s and the 40s, it must have just been hellish. There is a book by, I believe, uh, I can't remember his first name. His last name is Will. But anyway, it's called Dredgeman of Cape Sable. And this guy was part of the dredging team that dredged that canal in the 1935s. And he has pictures in there that saw, show these huge sawgrass prairies. And there is no sawgrass left on Cape Sable. And the book is, is fascinating. He calls himself uh, the cracker, cracker journalist or some such thing. And if you read that and read about how, what the habitat looked like and, and what they had to do to build that road, um, it's a remarkable story. And it's, it, I, I have to pick that book up every four or five years and reread it. It's a very short read just to get a feel for what I'm working on. And it's, it's fantastic to have that, that historic perspective. You know, there are so few places in the Everglades where, where we can actually, it was documented while it went on. You know, it just people just started dredging things up. And this guy, he wrote a history about it. And it, it's, it's really a fun read. It's fascinating. I'll have to track it down. We're talking today with Dr. Jerry Lorenz, the head of the Everglades Science Center, about restoration work at Cape Sable on the southwestern tip of uh, Everglades National Park, uh, southwestern tip of Florida. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit novascotia.com today and start planning your natural getaway. All right, we're back with Dr. Jerry Lorenz of the Everglades Science Center, and we're talking about restoring Cape Sable, uh, the uh, southwestern tip of Florida in the Everglades, and problems with canals, historic canals that were dug more than, well, almost a century ago, and efforts to plug them. Now, you'd mentioned sea level rise. How big of a threat is that? I mean, there was a study recently talking about what sea level rise is going to look like, I think, in 2050, and isn't Cape Sable going to be underwater by then? Pretty much it'll be a shallow marine. There'll be parts of it that are still more of a wetland than a marine environment. But certainly, you know, the things described by Will uh, in that book 
were wetlands with emergent grasses. And now most of Cape Sable is submerged mud bank with uh, submerged vegetation on it. So it has already become an open water habitat. And as far as it goes is I have, I have documented, I have um, my colleagues and I, the, the, my, my team, we have a series of, I believe 15 hydro stations uh, along the Southern coast of Florida. And these hydro stations measure water temperature, water depth, salinity, um, and I, they have been active collecting hourly data since I started in 1989. And I have been working on that data just coincidentally today. And it has a re remarkably since 2000, we have six more inches of water on our locations than we did 20 years ago. Wow. And that coincides with the sea level rise. There's a a marine gauge in Key West Harbor that has been active since 1913, so over 100 years. And it coincides with the same, basically about the same amount of rise that's there. So this is not something that's coming from upstream Everglades. It is definitely a marine invading parts of the Southern Everglades. And so when people say, well, when sea level is gonna be this and that in 30 years, we've already got six inches of sea level rise. So the house that I live in is at four feet above sea elevation. Well, now it's at three and a half. Um, I'm a little bit worried. <laughs> you know, if, if you live in the Keys and in South Florida, that six inches sounds a lot bigger than you would think while you're sitting there in Utah, right? It is, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge amount of water. Yeah. Um, and so it is, and that is why those canals we're mostly, you know, not really damaging anything from 1935 to the early 80s is because they, you know, the, the water was down 10 inches below where it is now. And 10 inches in, in a, a habitat where, you know, it will drop a, an inch in a mile, you know, you raise it six inches, you're flooding a whole lot of habitat. So the question becomes is why are we spending all this money? And the whole point of it is if we leave those canals where they are, the damage will be catastrophic, meaning it will happen very suddenly. And what you want to have happen is the damage from sea level rise. It's coming and it will, as you said, Cape Sable will eventually be underwater. But if it happens at a gradual pace rather than a catastrophic pace, then the organisms that live there will basically move upstream right as as their habitat gets pushed in the animals and plants will move with it whereas if it happens during a catastrophic event what i mean by that is if that gets hit by a hurricane that if we don't have those canals fixed that will end cape sable now hmm. whereas if we have a gradual thing when a hurricane hits it will recover it won't recover exactly the same, but it will recover. So that it won't be just this one episode. It'll occur over, if you're saying in 25 years, we'll have a foot of sea level rise, then it'll occur over 25 years rather than a discrete event. Now, are these concrete plugs that are going in? They're a mixture of concrete and fill and, and metal. And to describe them, they have basically two dams 
on the canal, perpendicular to canal, and they're about 50 feet apart. And then they get filled with um, fill, basically, uh, sand, mud, gravel. I, I forget what the substrate is. And then the plan was to plant on that, on, on the habitat that was created between these two dams. And then there are metal riprap, metal and rock riprap that stick out uh, like wings into the marsh so that the water will not be able to just kind of push around it and erode right around it. Um, it it's quite an engineering feat. But yeah, the, the, the engineering firm that, that we hired at Audubon, um, their big concern is not so much what pushes in from the ocean side, the Gulf side, it's what happens when we get a hurricane and all of that water that gets dumped on the wetland tries to get out. They said that's where the real force comes from. It's not what gets pushed in. It what once wants to come back out. Yeah, and so it's scary. engineered that way. Yeah, yeah. Is this inside the wilderness area? Yes. It's why it is so difficult to get this kind of thing done because it is in a federal wilderness. Yeah. Um, and... You know, it's the largest road roadless wilderness uh, east of the Mississippi. Yeah, and, Marjorie Stoneman wilderness. Yes, and so it is. Um, there are I know this from get, trying to get scientific permits to work at these places. The Wilderness Act makes it very difficult to do much of anything as far as structures go. They, they the Wilderness Act really does not like structures. But in this case, if we don't do it, the wilderness will no will no longer exist. And so the the need for these plugs on these man-made canals is very important. Yeah. So take us through the construction. I mean, it's in a remote area. Um, you have to hope that the dry season is going to be dry when you get down there. You have to bring all this equipment, and I'm guessing a, a, a little concrete along with the, the metal. You've got to get the, the fill someplace. Do they, they ferry in the fill or just use um, existing fill on the ground there? No, they have to. they have to bring in all of it. And they have to bring in the concrete and the metal. And again, you know, you you are talking about a very, very shallow habitat. Um, and yeah, the, the reason that they're waiting to November to build this is not so much that they want to do it during the dry season. It's that this is the largest nesting habitat for the federally endangered American crocodile in the United States. And this the lake I described earlier, Lake Ingram, is home to probably, you know, this is such a rare animal that, that you, I mean, you hardly ever see them. If you visit the Everglades, the likelihood of you running into a crocodile are, are very slim. But if you go to Lake Ingram, you'll see, at low tide, you'll just see them pulled up, you'll see a dozen, two dozen. So this is their prime real estate. Well, they nest beginning in April and in their nesting season, basically April through November. And so you can't do anything during that yeah. nesting season. So that's, that's why they got to wait till November. And what they do is then they have a barge with all the material anchored off in the Gulf of Mexico in deep enough water. And then they use these, I guess they're kind of flat bottom barges to bring that stuff in piecemeal, including the equipment that they need, the cranes and such. Um, and so they have to be very careful. Again, it's a wilderness. They can't just dredge along the bottom. You know, they got these things have to float over very shallow water. And so it's not like you can just fill up this massive barge and just truck it in. It, it doesn't happen. 
and you can't drive the material out there. It's a wilderness. There are no roads. Um, and so it's, uh, it is pretty amazing to watch how this works. Yeah, it sounds like it. it sounds like a story in itself, the, the logistics involved. I'm guessing it doesn't happen in one day. It's got to be a multi-day, if not a multi-week project. Oh, where, it's a multi-month, yeah. It, multi-month. It, where yeah, are the crews? They, they um, you know, it takes a long time to, to get all of this engineering, get the pieces to fit. And this is the same thing we're learning with Everglades Restoration, right? Is, is you can't just do it all at once. Yeah, you gotta have you gotta do this before you can do that before you can do the next thing because if you don't have this done first, that other thing can't be done, right? It it physically so you know they have to first do this and then you know do the construction sequentially, and um, yeah, I think if I remember right, I think a lot of those guys basically lived the week out on that barge and. Um, uh, would go off to the 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 off to the boat that was offshore, and then just come in and work in the morning. And um, it's <laughs> it's quite a story. Yeah, it sounds like it. Sounds like we're talking today with Dr. Jerry Lorenz about restoration work at Cape Sable on the southwestern tip of uh, Everglades National Park, and we'll be right back. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts, like certificates, money markets, or even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickeled and dimed every time they make a transaction. That's the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. Wild Tribute is lifestyle apparel founded for our parks and public lands. We donate 4% of our proceeds to support America's most wild and historic places. This is our Wild Tribute. Together, we can and will make a difference for the parks. You can learn more at wildtribute.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. So you touched on this a little bit, but when the project is completed, um, sometime in 2023, I'm guessing, what will it mean for Cape Sable and the, and the wider Everglades, including Everglades National Park? I really think it, it will have a more local impact on, on the Cape Sable area, meaning that, that the, the, the it, wetland that, will, that this will assist is Cape Sable. But it also means that the larger Everglades restoration, which is basically from, you know, Orlando to the reef tract here in the Florida Keys, you know, you got to, there are many projects that focus on just one part of that. It's not an ecosystem. It's a landscape. Mm -hmm. And Cape Sable is a very important part of that landscape. And so basically we're trying to keep 
the habitats, the, the individual quote unquote ecosystems within the Everglades. We want to keep, we want to keep that mosaic intact and we don't want to lose pieces of it. And that's, that's where Cape Sable looks in the larger picture. Does it enhance um, nesting habitat? Oh yeah. No, that was, that was the whole purpose of, you know, that was the reasoning that, that, that we used with the Ducks Unlimited and all the partners used was this is primary habitat for not only um, wading birds and ducks and, and other foraging birds. Um, and not only is it, like I said, home to the endangered American crocodile nesting habitat, it is vitally important to our fisheries. This, this has a huge economic impact as well because the, the fish that use that wetland as a nursery habitat are things like redfish and snook and tarpon and all these game fish that people from all over the world come to the Keys to fish for. Um, that is their nursery habitat. And that's, you know, we see, for example, uh, one of the, I believe the largest Atlantic grouper is the, the Goliath grouper. And this is primary habitat for, for juvenile Goliath grouper. You know, we see little three inch and four inch Goliath grouper that as an adult might be six, 700 pounds. Yeah. Um, and so it is vitally important um, from, from that aspect too. Uh, so there, yes, the, the ecology is critical to the national park, to the wilderness, but it is also vital to the economics of South Florida. The Keys are an economic engine because of fishing, diving, snorkeling, and on the water things. And without these habitats to serve as nursery habitats, those fisheries decline and why come here? Yeah. Other than it's warm. I mean, people always come because it's warm, but people want to go do things while sure. they're here. So it is really important. Now you've got these these rather large structures. I'm I'm imagining um, not as big as a football field, but um, nevertheless um, fairly large concrete and metal structures um, in a wilderness area. Are they to be camouflaged, so to speak, through vegetation, through bringing back native vegetation? Yeah, the the the, the plan for the first two was to grow vegetation on the fill in between the two walls. That has not worked very well to this point. Um, and I don't know that they're going to continue that idea with the Rollerson brothers end of it. They may. But uh, there is a, at the two existing, there is public access. So you can pull your boat up to the downstream side, lift your kayak, canoe, whatever. There's a, there's a concrete path that goes across the structure and you can launch it on the wilderness side of the structure. And so I look at it as, as public access. You know, the wilderness is not closed to public access. They're supposed to be there untrammeled, but that doesn't mean nobody's supposed to see them. Um, and so this is, this provides public access that otherwise would not be there. Um, and so you just kind of got to look at them. Like if you're in a national park, you're going to see restrooms right? And you got to look at it as this is part of the structure that allow us to enjoy this national park. Well, Jerry, thanks so much. Uh, it sounds like an incredible project, both um, from the sheer logistics of it to, to the benefits that it'll bring down to Cape Sable. I'm really looking forward to, after working on this problem for 30 years, 
like I said, my initial introduction to this was I was approached by the chief ranger at the Flamingo Outpost in Everglades National Park. He wanted to know if I could set up one of my cameras that we used to, to monitor wading birds on the dam at Cape Sable so that he could see who was going in there. And that was, that was 1989. So it's a long time coming and I'm going to be very happy when this is done. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll have to revisit after it is done to see if it achieved uh, the goals that you set out for it. I look forward to it. All right. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. That was Dr. Jerry Lorenz, director of Audubon's Everglades Science Center, discussing upcoming work to plug the last remaining canal at Cape Sable in Everglades National Park. Next week, we'll be staying along the coast as Lynn Riddick pays a visit to Padre Island National Seashore in Texas to explore the natural and cultural resources you can enjoy there. Also, in the weeks ahead, we'll be debuting a monthly webinar series on national parks with the first show to look at overlooked gems of the national park system, so keep an eye on the Traveler's website for more details on that. We'll also be launching a monthly silent auction with items ranging from whitewater raft trips and sea kayaking trips to lodging at Flamingo and Everglades National Park and stargazing with the Dark Ranger. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Park's Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.